You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice with the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice and the Baltimore Sun. We are hosting Black History Month Conversations, where we have an opportunity to sit down and talk with some of the Black Marylanders to watch. I'm joined now first by Kamahu Hyde, who is the Baltimore Sun Editor in Education and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Let me start with you, Mr. Hyde. Can you talk a little bit about the Black Marylanders to Watch series that came out at the beginning of the month? Yes, well, it's, you know, it's modeled after our um, 25 Women to Watch series. Uh, and the twist is that we added not just, we made it not just Black Marylanders, but we also added five living legends. Uh, so people such as Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Kurt Schmoke, uh, people such as that. And the, the, the Black Marylanders that we decided to spotlight, such as uh, Martha Jones, who we are talking with today, are all people who have, uh, have done the work and are sort of interesting and intriguing and worth watching. So for someone who's looking at the series and saying, you know what, I was not included this year. I'd like to be included next year. What did you use as criteria? Like, how did you make the decision to include someone as esteemed as Dr. Martha Jones? And then someone on the other end, Sherilyn Eiffel from the NAACP yes. Legal Defense Fund. Well, a lot went into it. We, you know, uh, I oversaw the the sort of putting this this entire thing together. And we, I reached out to the newsroom and said, like, you know, you, you reporters, you're on the beats. You're the ones who are actually out in these streets talking to people, getting to know them and seeing uh, what people are actually doing. Please send me your suggestions. So that combined with my own knowledge of Baltimore and also talking to people in the community sort of led to the list that we have today. Next year, we're thinking of opening into public nominations. So get your fingers ready. <laughs> that would be very nice. What are your other plans? We have now hit uh, February 16th, mm-hmm. kind of the, the middle of the month. We are making our way toward what some people would consider to be the end of Black History Month. I'm a three six fire or where I do <laughs> all year round. Yes. We have that one week between February and March, which has been dubbed Black Women's History Week. So what are the Baltimore Sun's plans for the rest of the month, kind of even moving into Women's History Month just a bit? Well, I can't speak to Women's History Month because I'm sort of focused on the Black History Month part of it, Um, um, but I'm sure we will have some content uh, related to that. But for the rest of this month, we are the um, the, everyone who is in the 25 Black Marylanders to watch will be highlighted on the front page of our Sunday papers. Uh, So this week, uh, I believe it is. It's escaping me who's on the cover this Sunday. Uh, we put we put these together so far back that it, it all sort of runs together. Um, but we are also working on, I'm actually edit, in the process of editing a piece currently about the Black aesthetic and interior design that I'm hoping, fingers crossed, will run either on Sunday or on Monday um, from one of our uh, top reporters, John John Williams IV. Uh, he has some very interesting things to say about what is the Black aesthetic. 
And for people who are interested in finding more about the Black aesthetic, I would encourage you to go to the Carson Institute's website. Uh, Kamala and I sat down last week and spoke with one of the living legends, uh, Jacqueline Copeland, and talked about Black art. Uh, I'm excited this week. This is one I've been looking forward to with Professor Dr. Martha Jones. She's a Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor of History, and she's a professor at the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University. She's a legal and cultural historian whose work examines how Black Americans have shaped the story of American democracy. She's the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, which was selected as Time Magazine's 100 Must Read Books for 2020. And she is featured with an essay in the 1619 Project, which I'm excited about getting into today. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to take a moment to welcome our special guests who are in the audience because today we are doing something different. We have this open conversation between the students at Loyola University, which will be led by Professor Zoe Derrickson and Father Tim Brown. I want to welcome you, some of my students, to the conversation. I'm on the campus of City Neighbors High School here in Baltimore City, and the students of Miss Rowe and Miss Jolly's Pod are in the next room and they are watching. So, welcome to our high school students. And we want to and just welcome the students. From Oregon State University, our HBCU neighbor that's down the street from both Loyola and City Neighbors. Uh, thank you for joining the conversation today. What I want to talk about, uh, Professor Jones, is the work around toward an intellectual history of Black women to help us frame that and to understand that. So can you begin by just framing the Emancipation Proclamation for us and how marking that anniversary did not, in so many words, quote, sacrifice the past in the interest of the present? Um, well, thank you for the question. But first, let me just say what an honor it is to be with you. Um, I was on Twitter just a few minutes ago saying I've waited such a long time for the chance to talk with you. So um, this is really a thrill. So thanks to you, um, to the Carson Institute and to the Baltimore Sun. Um, so let's go back in time. That's what we do as historians. Um, it's 1862. Um, the nation is gripped um, by civil war. Um, Abraham Lincoln is president, um, commander in chief, and um, the outcome of the war is far from certain. In fact, um, the Union, the North, um, is suffering extraordinary losses, and the president is thinking strategically. Um, he's been influenced by Black activists, um, men like Frederick Douglass, um, who have been clamoring um, for their opportunity to contribute to the war effort, their opportunity to steer the war in the direction of slavery's abolition. And Lincoln, by the fall of 1862, is persuaded that it is time for a radical measure. And he offers the Confederacy, the Southern states, one more chance. Um, he issues a proclamation that says, if you don't come back into the Union, if you don't set down your arms by January 1st, um, I will abolish slavery in the rebel states. I will open the gates to Black men in military service, um, and we will continue to pursue the war effort. Well, we know um, that the Southern uh, states do not concede. Um, and Lincoln, in January 1st, 1863, issues the Emancipation Proclamation. It's a moment to appreciate 
Now, I'm a legal historian, so y'all will forgive me. Um, the limits of the president's power, um, because while the president with the proclamation abolishes slavery in all the rebel territories, um, he has no power to enforce it. And so in many ways, the Emancipation Proclamation is an aspirational document, right? It tells us about the future. It tells us about where Lincoln hopes the war will go, which is toward the abolition of slavery, but it's too soon. He doesn't have the kind of power and authority yet to actually make good on that. And it will be enslaved people, former slaves, who will have to breathe life into that proclamation and make it do work in their lives, absent any support from the Union Army. As a follow-up, before I go to Kamau, could you just explain to people, I think sometimes it gets lost, that, that at that moment, we were two countries, that when South Carolina led the effort, my home state, by the way, when they led the effort to succeed from the Union, it was to actually start a different country, the Confederate States of America, just to kind of help people understand that Lincoln didn't have the power to do what he actually laid out in the proclamation. It is. We are... Um, two nations in this moment. The Confederacy has its own capital, Richmond, Virginia, its own constitution, its own president, et cetera. Um, and the only power Lincoln has in this moment is military power. And his military power does not extend to the whole of the Confederacy at all. And so realization of the proclamation requires not only political vision, um, it requires political might. And so its success um, will be gradual. Um, and in fact, there will be many places in the United States um, where slavery will continue long after the proclamation, including our adopted home state of Maryland, which will not abolish slavery until November of 1864. Well, you know, sort of speaking of that, can you talk a little bit about the, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and sort of the and what it meant to be a free black person in that time? Like, What was it actually like as a to sort of walk around in those times? So um, here we are um, in the uh, months and years after the Civil War um, conflict has been resolved. Um, and in Washington, um, much of the talk is about how now the nation will be stitched back together. As Dr. K said, right, the nation has been split, has been divided in two. Um, and the pressing question among the pressing questions, one that has been forced by Black Americans, especially Black soldiers, is now what is the future of slavery? Um, and there are some fears, right, that Southern states, when they come back in the Union, might try and reinstitute slavery um, it, it, it locally, um, even if they can't do so nationally. And so the 13th Amendment, yes, abolishes, manumits, um, frees 4 million plus Black Americans who have been held in bondage through the war, but it does more. It says the category of slavery is unconstitutional in the United States, that no state can by their own laws look to reinstate the institution of slavery as it had been constituted before the war. What is it like to be a free person? In many ways, um, it is exhilarating. And we have records of um, those moments when 
freedom comps um, and Black Americans, um, whether it's in the intimacy of a family or it is in a public celebration, um, mark the 13th Amendment um, and the prospect of freedom um, through um, the jubilee, right, the, the, the celebration. At the same time, um, once celebrations subside, Black Americans face an extraordinary range of questions because nobody really knows what freedom is going to mean. Um, is freedom simply being no longer subject to the shackles or to the lash or to the auction block? Or is freedom now something that includes citizenship, the right to vote, the right to travel, autonomy over your family and more? So. In some sense, while the 13th Amendment is uh, more than a milestone, it is a revolution in many ways in the United States, it leaves many, many questions unanswered. And Black Americans will now, formerly enslaved and some of them formerly free, um, will now be charged with, again, breathing life into that notion of freedom and to finding for themselves and for the country what freedom actually constitutes. Um, it's a new question um, and it is a complicated one. I would say um, in some sense, we might um, even go so far as to suggest that we're still figuring out today here and even in 2022 fully what we think freedom means. Professor Jones, that, that is Really fascinating because I, I wrestle with that a lot. Like I wrestle with what does it mean to be free and exactly what is democracy? And I remember as a doctoral student, I used to go down to Maryland, University of Maryland, College Park, to where Professor Ira Berlin was. And I remember writing my dissertation and having him read portions of it and challenge me to think beyond. So there was a question he always posed to me. And every time he asked me over and over again, I always had different answers. So I want to pose that question to you. And so he would ask me and say, so if the South had won, if the war had gone differently, do I think slavery would have continued? What would we have now? Into At that time, it was into 2006, 2007. We're in 2022. So with your long eye of history, so say the South would have won or even tied, where they both just stepped back. Where do you think we would be now within the Black community, you know, specifically and then more generally in this country when it comes to democracy? Well, I think we can look to um, two examples right, in the Americas. One is Cuba and the other is Brazil. Right? These are slaveholding um, nations um, that continue right, to um, with slavery intact until nearly the end of the 19th century. Um, and so one thing we know is that slavery can continue. That's the first thing, is that the, the South um, might have built its alliances with those slaveholding nations to its South um, and continued um, to thrive and to um, build not only an economy, but a political alliance and more that would have permitted slavery to continue. Um, that's the first thing to say. Um, but we know that by the end of the 19th century, slavery um, has fallen away 
um, as an economic institution, um, as a political institution um, in the Americas. So slavery would have certainly ended in the American South. But I think the real question, or what I hear in your question, or Dr. Berlin's question, future of racism, what is the future of anti-Black racism? And in that, I would say there is too little in the 13th Amendment, as we were just talking about, um, that speaks to the problem and the persistence of anti-Black racism. And so um, even without your hypothetical, um, what we know is that there is too little in the Civil War, too little in that period that follows the war that we call Reconstruction, that um, purposefully and effectively um, does away with anti-Black racism. And so in some ways, I think we live in that world that Ira Berlin um, asked you to conjure um, already, um, because we live in a world in which anti-Black racism continues to be a major um, force, um, not a force for good, but a major force in our shared lives in the U.S., you know, speaking of racism, uh, you've done research into the notoriously racist uh, Supreme Court decision, Dred Scott, uh, which held that uh, people of African descent could not be citizens. Could you talk a little bit about uh, that, the, your research into, into that and its impact on America and in Maryland? Sure. Um, my interest in Dred Scott um, really was in discovering how Black Marylanders grappled with the decision, um, how they responded to it. Um, as folks likely know, um, Baltimore is home to the largest community of free Black people in the United States in the years of Dred Scott. And so it is a critical place for understanding the impact of the decision. And I discovered two things. Um, on the one hand, um, by the time the Supreme Court issues in 1857, the Dred Scott decision, no black person can be a citizen of the United States. Um, black Marylanders are very sophisticated about questions related to their citizenship. Um, and they are not fooled, they are not bamboozled, they are not cowed by the rhetoric that comes out of the U.S. Supreme Court, the faulty history that comes out of the U.S. Supreme Court. They have a memory, for example, of their fathers and grandfathers once having voted as Black men in the state of Maryland, for example, um, a, uh, a fact right, that runs directly counter to the Supreme Court's conclusion. So you've got a community of folks who are not um, cowed by the U.S. Supreme Court and are going to continue their insistence and their struggle that they are citizens of the United States. The other thing that happens in Maryland is that um, there are those who would look to, in essence, impose the terms of Dred Scott directly and um, devastatingly in Maryland. What does that mean? For example, it would mean that if you impose Dred Scott in Maryland, that Black Marylanders would be excluded from local courthouses, that they, they would be ineligible to defend their persons and their property before the courts, something they had been doing since the beginning of Maryland. Um, so Black Marylanders are testing this by coming into the courthouse after Dred Scott. Some of them are being challenged. Those, one of those challenges winds up in the state's high court in Annapolis, and the judges there are asked, 
do black people have any rights that whites are bound to respect in the state of Maryland? And the answer in Maryland is yes, um, that these large communities of free African-Americans have so established themselves um, that it is impossible even for the white supremacists on the Maryland high court to imagine um, keeping black Marylanders out of the courthouse when it comes to everyday disputes. And so despite Dred Scott and its devastating rhetoric um, and its implications, right, for a long-term long prospects of black citizenship, it does not have the kind of effect that Chief Justice Roger Tawney, who himself is a Baltimorean, hopes it would have had in a city like Baltimore. Now, to drill down deep into thinking about Black history in Baltimore uh, and Black women in Maryland, kind of extending beyond, I think about the fact that we're celebrating uh, Harriet Tubman at 200, you know, 200 mm-hmm. years uh, from 1822 to now. Harriet Tubman, who was physically challenged uh, in terms of w- what happened to her body when she was hit in the head with a piece of iron, um, the fact that she still found the courage to hide Time and time again, of course, um, to steal away. And then she was involved in the Civil War as well. Can you talk about what we can learn from Harriet Tubman, who in, you know, in a unique way, never wrote anything down, could not read or write. So her entire story is from other people telling her story. Yeah, um, thank you for, um, for introducing her and um, bringing her into this discussion. Um, you've captured um, much of the important work that Harriet Tubman does in the um, in the years before the war and during the war as a scout and more. Um, I encounter her in my work much later. Um, it's now the early 20th century and uh, Black women are organizing around what? voting rights. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a campaign afoot in the United States to amend the Constitution to add a woman's suffrage amendment. Tubman is living in upstate New York, where she has continued to be a caretaker and a champion for her community. Um, Her last life project was building a um, a retirement home um, for Black Americans in Auburn, New York. And we find her there in the years leading up to the campaign for the 19th Amendment. And she weighs in. She's a suffragist. Um, She's still an activist. She's still thinking um, about the issues of the day. And I think that's part of the lesson, right, is that Tubman is blessed with a long life. And her concerns, her efforts, her vision shifts as history shifts. And that means um, that the woman who was once a frontline anti-slavery activist, an abolitionist, um, becomes, after many decades, a suffragist. Now, coming back to the earlier question, right, still breathing life into freedom by insisting that Black women should have access to the ballot box. So I think part of the, the lesson is about the ways in which our activism shifts over time as the questions of the day shift. And Tubman is that brilliant, right, that she can move with the times. Mm. 
You know, sort of speaking of the the 19th Amendment, which, you know, effectively gave women the right to vote, um, you know, it doesn't pass until 1920. Can you talk about its impact on sort of black women moving forward? Sure. Um, I've just written a book that um, tells this story. And um, and um, the two things I think to say about the 19th Amendment. Um, On the one hand, black women have been thinking through strategizing, organizing around their political power for a very long time. By the time we get to 1920, for a century, Black women have been engaged with the intersecting challenges of racism and sexism. And one way forward for some Black women is this movement that results in the 19th Amendment. At the same time, um, the 19th Amendment um, is adopted and becomes part of the Constitution pursuant to a dirty bargain. And the dirty bargain is that nothing in the 19th Amendment will prohibit mostly Southern states from continuing to use their local laws to keep Black women from the polls like they have kept Black men from the polls. So now, poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, all these mechanisms that Black men have been suffering under since the 1890s are now going to confront Black women in 1920 when they attempt to register, when they attempt to cast their ballots. So the revelation for Black women um, is, of course, that they must continue to build a new movement for voting rights in after 1920. Um, and they join with Black men in a movement that we know takes us all the way to 1965 and the passage of the Voting Rights Act. But it means that we can't, when we center Black women in the story of voting rights, as I think we should, um, then where we come to is an understanding that that story doesn't end in 1920. 1920 is a milestone. It certainly lifts one barrier, um, but the barrier of anti-Black racism is not lifted. It is very much in place in 1920, and Black women will be kept away from the polls in many, many places as a result. I think that's part of that long eye of history, as I would say, in terms of connecting what you laid out with Black women, that the story doesn't start with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which took away the barriers, uh, not just for Black women, but also for Asian American women. It doesn't start in 1920 with the 19th Amendment. I mean, it doesn't even start back in 13, with the 13th Amendment of 1865. Like this long eye of Black women struggling for what it means to be free and to be recognized could go all the way back. I think of the 1619 Project, which I know you did an essay and I wanted you to talk about that. But I look ahead when it talks about the first baby being born to Isabel, like the first first African woman to have a baby here on American soil, to me begins that long trajectory that ties Black womanhood to Black motherhood. And what does that mean to struggle forward for your children? So can you talk a bit about your work in the 1619 Project and then talk about why it's kind of controversial right now, at least not from where I sit, but where it's being centered in our country? Sure. Um, You know, the 1619 Project now has its own history. Um, (laughs) And um, 
I, I was not a part of the original project, which was um, published in the New York Times in newspaper form and has circulated in so many educational spaces, thousands upon thousands of them since. But when it came time to um, then pull those ideas together and expand them into a book form, um, I was really honored for the opportunity to bring some of my work. And part of what I wanted to bring was what I had learned by studying early Black Baltimoreans and their political culture. Um, so my essay is called Citizenship, and it is um, the story of how, indeed, when the U.S. Constitution is ratified back in the 18th century in 1787, um, there is no definition of citizenship in the original constitution. And Black Americans present the first constitutional puzzle, um, a crisis in some moments, which is who are they in connection with the constitution? Well, we've already talked about how decades later, the Supreme Court will weigh in on this question. But the Supreme Court those men are latecomers to a debate that Black Americans have been generating right out of the revolution, right out of the Constitution, which is who are we in front of this document? Um, and so in this essay, I'm able to tell that story of um, Black intellectual life and how Black Americans come to the Constitution, read it, interpret it, reinterpret it, advocate for new meanings out of the Constitution. Um, we learn how they struggle in courthouses um, to insist that they are citizens of the United States. And the story really culminates um, with one of the gifts that Black Americans leave to all Americans, which is a new definition of citizenship that becomes part of the Constitution in 1868 after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution just after the 13th, which says, basically, if you're born in the United States, you are a citizen of the United States. And this is new, not because nobody's ever thought it before, but because it's never been part of our Constitution. It's never been one of our foundational principles. And this has an immediate consequence for formerly enslaved people who are now citizens of the United States by virtue of their birth unequivocally. But it has tremendous implications for all Americans to this day, right? Which is to say, I am a citizen of the United States, born, I won't tell you when, young people, but it was a while ago. Um, but I was born, right, um, <laughs> in the United States, in New York. And I am a citizen of the United States unequivocally. And this has benefited the children of immigrants, the children of dissidents, in addition to the children of Black Americans. And so I wanted to write this chapter to further the 1619 Project's claim, right, which is that the struggles of Black Americans, the visions of Black Americans fundamentally shape, change, define this nation. When it comes to citizenship, that is just unequivocally so. Or at least I hope folks will be persuaded of that when they read my essay. Um, the project is controversial. Um, you probably have as much an idea about that as I do. Um, but it's to say that it has been provocative, unsettling, and more for some readers and even folks who don't read, frankly, that's a problem in and of itself, um, to um, 
take seriously the notion that Black history is the center of our national story, not a sidebar, not one month a year, the shortest month of the year, February, right? But that Black history is the center. It is the spine, right? And that we can tell the whole of this nation's history through the ideas, the activism, the lives, the degradations and more of Black Americans. Now, I'm a Black historian. I don't find that to be as unsettling an idea as some might, um, but that is where we are, right? Is that no longer is our history a sidebar. Um, our history is the history. And um, that is, you know, I, I try and be compassionate because it, 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 with folks, some folks, right, who are unsettled by this idea because it's not the way they learned history in school. Not the way I learned history in school, frankly. Um, and so it requires reflection and transformation, right, of some fundamental ideas. Um, but we are here. I know you are here. I am here. We are here to do the work and to do that work, you know, alongside journalists like um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and many others. And we're here to do that work for the long haul. And so um, the good news is that the 1619 Project isn't going anywhere. The work that it pulls together is going nowhere, even as it is facing, you know, extraordinary challenge in many states. Um, and um, like Harriet Tubman, right? We're not here for a season. We're not here, you know, for one struggle. We're here for the long struggle. And, and um, that work will be there for everyone and anyone when it is their time to finally come to it and to understand it better. You know, speaking of Harriet Tubman, earlier you you mentioned her uh, in reference to her work on the 19th Amendment. Are there any sort of lesser figures uh, who worked uh, for the passage of the 19th Amendment whose stories that we should we should highlight or perhaps know better? Is there one that uh, is your favorite, for example? Oh, gosh. Well, absolutely. I have many favorites, but <laughs> I want to I want to hold up um, a great Baltimorean, um, the poet. Uh, abolitionist, women's suffragist, novelist, and more, the great Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, um, born in Baltimore in 1825, um, educated in our city, um, becomes a teacher herself, um, and um, as a young woman begins to not only think remarkable thoughts, but to put them to paper in the form of poetry. Um, and we can find um, a small copy of her very original, her most her first original book, Forest Leaves, in the collection of the Maryland uh, Center for History and Culture today. Um, Frances Watkins Harper um, is really a human rights visionary. Um, one of her most quoted lines is that we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And in the moment, the fraught moments just after the Civil War, she's thinking about hard about the question that you all asked, right? What is freedom? And for her, freedom is an expansive vision. It is a human rights vision. It will lift up, yes, Black women who, whom she believes staunchly should have voting rights, um, but it will lift everyone um, is really her vision. And she 
um, shares that vision with so many Black women activists, generations of them to follow. Um, she will go on to be a great suffragist, um, a temperance advocate. Temperance is a movement that um, looks to suppress the sale and the consumption of alcohol. That's a, probably a whole other, it's a whole other lesson. Um, and she is a novelist um, at the end of her life. Um, her great novel, Iola Leroy, is something we still read and teach and admire. Um, uh, she is overdue, if I could just plug, because I'm talking to so many Baltimoreans today, she is overdue. Um, for a real tribute in Baltimore City, because she is one of our great, great daughters, a woman of extraordinary consequence in U.S. history, um, who um, we haven't always appreciated, I think, as well as we should. I want to ask you something that you just mentioned earlier. You said, you know, that's not the history that, that people were taught in terms of being sympathetic. Uh, you said it wasn't a history that, that you were taught. But I remember it as a history that I was taught. But I was taught that history mm. on the knee. So not necessarily in yes. the school, but but by my father. Like I remember being told the stories of how my mother's family received their 40 acres, their mule, and $50. And we still have that 40 acres in the family today. It's air property. And my father would contrast that with the fact that his family did not. That when they showed up to kind of claim what was theirs, they had been told the office was closed. And he would then lay out the story of advancement in my mother's family as a result of that and the ways in which his side of the family was kept behind. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which our freedom is tied up to economic advancement because so much of what we've been denied has been based on the questions around freedom and around citizenship. Absolutely. Right. And part of what we know about our story, um, and you are right, right? These are the stories. Um, in my family, we hear snippets of them. I have to say, right? Um, and I'm someone who has made a life's project, right? Of coming back and filling in the places, right? That the things I didn't learn, right? At family dinner. Um, um, we know um, that um, in my family, um, it's my great grandfather, uh, Dallas Jones, um, who is a shoemaker. Um, a Republican Party activist um, and an ambitious man in the city of Greensboro, North Carolina at the end of the 19th century. Um, Dallas Jones um, and men like him are deliberately, violently, purposefully mm -hmm. deprived, yes, of their livelihoods, um, but also of their political agency with the rise of the apartheid regime in the United States. States, what we come to call Jim Crow. Um, black men and black women, right, pushed out of the public square, pushed out of the political uh, marketplace, um, and kept out of those places for generations until for many, many of us, we get to the civil rights revolution um, later in the 20th century. Um, so this, um, the legacy of that oppression, the legacy of that violence, um, the legacy of that suppression 
um, folks more expert than me um, have worked to quantify, right? And um, when we invoke things like the wealth gap, right, income gap, and more, we are in part shorthanding, right, that history um, that for so long kept too many Black Americans um, from the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace of education, the marketplace of commerce, um, and a great, great deal more. That's all my questions, Dr. K. So now, of course, I could talk with you, Dr. Jones, for, for quite a while. I am really enjoying this conversation. I want to invite the students from uh, Loyola University who are on campus with Father Tim Brown to ask questions. I'm going to go next door with the students from City Neighbors High School to ask questions and ask Kamau if he could fill the questions while I'm in movement. But but I do have to ask you a question that, that I've been holding on to. Um, for you, Dr. Jones, and I read your work and I follow your work and I just really appreciate the ways in which you you purposely and intentionally go back and fill in the spaces. Kind of that's why I became a historian, to fill in the blank spaces and to be the one to tell our story. I mean, that's what Black women said when they were talking about lifting as we climb in Mary Church Terrell, that we have to be the ones to tell our story, because if we don't tell our stories, then who will? And when they tell it, it's probably going to be wrong. And so for, for our students who are here, who are now hopefully becoming budding young historians and looking at the history, what are some of the texts? Like, where should they start? 1619 is a meaty project. I mean, it's a meaty mm. project for me. I have to read it in pieces. So where would you have, where would you tell your students to start on the path to trying to understand the questions of democracy and freedom using the lens of Black America, since our history is the history? It's a wonderful question. And um, I'm going to recommend um, another uh, remarkable um, collection of essays um, that has recently been published called 400 Souls. Um, this is a collective community history. Um, I believe there are 90 um, writers, all of whom contributed short chapters that tell the entirety of um, not only U.S. history, but the history of North America um, from the perspective of Black Americans. And if I'm breaking up, you'll tell me, Dr. K. Um, I see my connection's a little unstable. Um, so to give you a flavor, um, my uh, chapter, my assignment for 400 Souls was to write about the American Revolution. Well, there's a big um, Elizabeth Freeman, um, enslaved in Massachusetts during the revolution, who sues for her freedom based upon the principles of the revolution and succeeds and contributes to the destruction ultimately of slavery in the state of Massachusetts. Um, so 400 Souls is short essays written from the heart, um, but really um, highlight both people, um, signal moments and more. Um, I can't recommend it um, enough. Um, 
even as I have an essay in it, um, there, there are many, many, many others um, that I think are really um, instructive um, in just the way you suggest, filling in those blank spaces um, that our textbooks, our lesson plans and more may not have, um, may not have uh, spoken to. 400 Souls, edited by Dr. Ibram Kendi and Dr. Keisha Blaine. It's actually one of my favorite books now. Um, again, that, that's a book that I would take only in pieces. I want to ask Courtney Carroll if she could cut on everyone's camera so we can uh, get the questions going. When I was reading 400 Souls, um, in terms of trying to find myself in the history, I actually had to figure out by year where I wanted to rest, uh, because sometimes I'm very interested in thinking about the 19th century, and other times I'm just trying to figure out why we are in the situation that we're in now, the racism that we're dealing with. And so in allowing people to ask questions, I have one more I just wanted to, to throw out uh, to you, because I was talking to the students from Sydney Neighbors, Miss Rose class, and I'm on my way over there, and I talked about how we are now, as Black people, we make up 13.1% percent up to 14 percent of the population but we are overrepresented in the in the mass industrial incarceration population with michelle alexander talks about in the new jim crow that when slavery ended legally with the 13th amendment there was a caveat that was made that perhaps explains that piece. So can you talk about, as I pass it over to Kamal, can you talk about not the 13th Amendment that talked about freedom, but the 13th Amendment, the portion that then really hammers in slavery in the mass industrial prison complex? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, thank you for bringing us back to that facet of the 13th Amendment, um, which um, in its text makes an exception, right, for um, the state, um, makes the exception for those who are um, bound in a new way um, by um, law, um, by courts, um, by the penitentiary, um, that these are still Americans who can be um, compelled to labor, um, not precisely in the way enslaved people were, um, but in ways that allow for the um, further enactment, the further um, embodiment, the further promotion of anti-Black racism, now not through a system of slavery, but through a system of um, uh, what ultimately is going to be over um, incarceration. Um, so I'm someone who thinks we still need to, we still need history um, to understand fully where we are, um, and so I hope a book like 400 Souls, um, in a sense, provides the, um, that historical explanation, that historical context. And in that sense, history for me is instructive because history helps us appreciate how deeply entrenched inequality is in the United States, that our 21st century concerns, and they are pressing as real concerns in our lifetimes are difficult to challenge and difficult to excavate precisely because they have been with us for a very long time. Um, and so this story of the 13th Amendment, its exception, and how it leaves open the possibility 
of the exploitation that we often call mass incarceration or over-incarceration, um, uh, it helps us understand why that, that condition in our own time, even as we agree widely right, about its vast injustice, is difficult to extract. And I think oftentimes history provides that kind of answer. Well, Dr. K is on her way over to the other classroom, so we'll open it up to questions. <clears throat> Feel free to raise your hand or drop it into the chat. Uh, while we wait for those to fill, to fill up, uh, I have a question, which is, you know, the, the Emancipation Proclamation, it's always rankled me that uh, the free states or the North, the slavery was not abolished there. Can you sort of talk about the rationale that uh, behind Lincoln's decision there? Right. So here we are back again um, in uh, um, the early years still of the Civil War, um, a president thinking as a commander in chief, thinking strategically. Um, one facet of Lincoln's strategy um, where he's been successful up until 1862, that fall, He's been successful in keeping what come to be called the border states in the Union, All right? So his strength in part is that there are four states. This is a quiz now, people. The border states were Maryland, right? Slaveholding state stays in the Union. Delaware, slaveholding stays in the Union. Um, Kentucky and Missouri. Um, and Lincoln is looking to craft a proclamation that will not alienate those four states, will not lead them to, in essence, switch right, allegiances and join the Confederacy, uh, because he knows this is, um, that would be the sort of change, that would be the sort of shift, right, that um, might easily um, spell the end of the war and a victory for the Confederacy. Um, so Lincoln is going to um, accept, make an exception for the border states, um, for example. Um, his proclamation is a punishment, right? It is a discipline on those who are in rebellion. And as a consequence, there are parts of um, the Sea Islands. Um, there are parts of Louisiana that are also accepted. Um, and not subject to the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation because they are territories that are in um, already in control, union control. Um, so it's it's. I think your question just it, it, it goes to reminding us that um, Lincoln is not a radical abolitionist. He would, if he could win the war without abolishing slavery, he would have done so. Um, he's not able to. And as a military measure, he is now prepared, right, to open the door to slavery's abolition, open the door to black men's military service in an effort to have the union prevail. Um, and that is not a principled moral critique of the institution of slavery. That is a commander in chief's very pragmatic, powerful. And prag but very pragmatic intervention into the question of slavery. All right, well, we have a, a yes, I just want to jump in with a question. I hope you can hear me. I'm in with the students. I'd like them to say hello. 
Hello. Yeah. Hey, y'all. So we have the 11th and 12th grade students at City Neighbors High School. They do have a few questions. The first one um, was written for me on the board. Dr. Jones, based upon your research in 2022, are Black people free? Mm. All right. Now, now, this is the thing you have to know, folks, is that when you ask a historian a question, they say, well, it depends. <laughs> so allow me. But so let me say two things, right? Um, right. The, the, the legal historian says, you know, yes, right, that enslavement was a very specific form of bondage. Um, it was heritable. One, um, you could be bought sold, mortgaged, right? It was a very specific form of exploitation. And while there is a great deal of injustice in this country, um, those dimensions of slavery um, do not persist in the 21st century. That having been said, I am very much um, uh, influenced by uh, our Afro-futurist thinkers, right, who say that as Black Americans, we are still in the process of imagining, inventing, bringing into being a future where we are fully free. And what does full freedom look like? Well, we debate that, don't we, right? Um, that is to say, um, is, is that freedom in a legal sense? Is it freedom in an economic sense? Is it freedom in a spiritual sense? Um, is it freedom from violence? Is it freedom from want? Um, but that is the project of my colleagues who practice and think with Afrofuturism, um, is to imagine a future that is a free future and to debate exactly what freedom, um, what freedom will look like for us. So we have a student here who's going to ask a question. Can you tell me your name and what grade you're in? Yes. Just first name only. My name is Jalen. I'm in 12th grade. You can speak up. I'm in 12th grade. And the question I wanted to ask is like, when it comes to Black history, say y'all fill in the bank, blanks. So how powerful will it be to African-Americans when you fill in the blanks in our civil rights history, essentially? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for that question. I think it's it's a really important way to think about what history is and what history does. You know, one ver another version, a more a less polite version, is why does history matter at all? And I think history, um, in part, um, as I said earlier, is an instrument for understanding the how formidable many of our challenges are. They've been with us for a very long time. Um, but I also think for me, history is the place for inspiration. You know, when I study, um, when I recovered the struggles of Black Americans generations before, um, I understand myself to be an, an inheritor, right, of that struggle um, and um, see my way forward. Um, the last thing I'll say is that um, I had an experience a few years ago. I spent a year um, with a class, uh, the sophomores at the Baltimore School for the Arts, and um, they were um, staging their annual production and they were looking at the early black history in Baltimore and were using one of the books I had written. And um, one of the young men said to me when we were finishing up, you know, very, very 
a very bold version of this question, which is why have you kept this history from us for so long? And um, for me, that's a question that has really stuck with me because what he was saying is, you know, if I had known this history um, about my city, about my community, about my people, about myself, um, maybe I would have thought differently about myself, right, from the beginning and that you've kept this from me. So I'm now I'm 16, right? And I'm learning for the first time about Francis Ellen Watkins Harper or George Hackett or many of the great Black Baltimoreans um, and the courageous lives they led a long time ago. Um, so I think that um, we sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously, you know, see our own futures through the past. Um, and for me, it's important to give you more of a picture of the past to see your own life through than we sometimes get in a textbook. I'm sure your textbooks are great. And I know your teachers are amazing, um, but we can always do more. Uh, looks like we have a question from the chat. Uh, because the 13th Amendment allowed for slavery to be constitutional, if the person was a prisoner, do you think that it makes it harder for Black people, specifically Black women, to define their own version of citizenship and freedom? Uh, I, I guess the first thing I'd say, um, I probably see it a little differently than the questioner. I don't think that the 13th Amendment exception permits slavery to be reconstituted. It permits um, uh, heinous forms of unfreedom um, to persist, um, to emerge, um, and persist into our own time. Um, but it is not slavery, um, in my view. That having been said, um, we know that the consequences of the rise of a carceral state um, is indeed a new form of unfreedom. And we have the work, a great work of historians like Cheryl Hicks, um, Talitha LaFloria, um, Sarah Haley, and more um, who have taken us inside the experiences of Black women um, who are um, forced into that system, um, yes, as an alternative. Um, to their full citizenship, yes, as a means of suppressing their capacities as full citizens of the United States. And so I don't think you can tell fully the story of, say, voting rights or Black citizenship if you don't also tell the story about the rise of um, carcerality um, in the United States. They are all part of the same story. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jones. We're just excited to, to be able to have this conversation. I'm excited you were able to tap in with our students from Loyola University, Maryland, Morgan State University, and of course, our high schoolers from City Neighbors High School. Kamau Hai, who is the Baltimore Sun Editor in Education and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. The two of us will be back here next Wednesday for our final conversation in this series uh, with Reverend Heber Brown talking about food and faith in the Black community. Can food and faith save us? Thank you so much, Kamau Hai, again for joining me. Thank you for having um, me. Oh, and also I just wanted to quickly add, uh, I looked up the profiles running on Sunday and one of them is of Amanda Mack who does Crust by Mac. So if you know delicious food, 
you'll want to pick up uh, this Sunday's paper. Excellent. Thank you. Professor Martha Jones is a Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor of History and a professor at the SNF Agora Institute at the Johns Hopkins University. She's a legal and cultural historian whose work examines how Black Americans have shaped the story of American democracy. But my last question to you, Professor Jones, and then I'll go and I'll debrief what the students from City Neighbors High School. But I just want you to go a little bit into the future. I always like to ask historians this question to imagine when you have, as my Nana would say, run on ahead to see how the end is going to be. And when the next group of young historians pick up your work, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want them to say about your contribution? I should have known you would ask me the hardest question at the end, Dr. Kaya. Thank you for that. Um, I'd like to be remembered as someone who um, um, oh, gosh, why is that such a hard question? Why is that such a hard question? I've never thought about it. That's why it's so hard. I think um, I'd like to be remembered as somebody who, um, yes, changed how we think about the past, but also changed um, uh, our ideas about who is a historian and, and how we write history. Um, I'm someone who became a historian because I like family history and I knew too little about my own family. Um, and so I began to collect stories in documents and, um, you know, interviews with elders and more. Um, and I think part of my story is about how um, all our histories, our families, our communities are, are the stuff of history, that history is no longer the history of distant, great white men, most of them dead, um, that history really um, is about our lives, is about our past, about our families, and about our communities. And so I hope that everything I write shows a little bit um, about the people I come from um, and how I see the world. And it opens the door wider for other folks to, to do the same. So I hope out there, there are future historians who will write their own histories. Y'all need to write the histories you need. I'm writing the histories that I need to read. Y'all need to write the histories you need to read. And I hope I'm opening the door to more of that. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Jones. We really appreciate the conversation. We look forward to next Wednesday for our final conversation in this series. I'm Dr. KYZ Whitehead, the Executive Director of the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history, so use yours wisely.